When a word or phrase rises to prominence in the collective conversation, there's a danger of it becoming diluted or distorted so much that it strays from its original meaning. That's happening now with the word narcissist. Everyone from the arrogant boss to the selfie-loving teenager becomes a narcissist. The truth is, we all have a touch of narcissist in us, but not everyone deserves that label. Our questions this episode: What's the true definition, and how do we interact with people who sit at different places on the spectrum? Welcome to episode twenty-seven of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really pleased to be welcoming Dr. Lori Helgo back to the podcast for a continuation of our episode two conversation about narcissists and bullies. In this episode, we dive a bit deeper into the nuances of narcissistic traits, including how to take care of yourself when talking with a narcissist, and how narcissism shows. Up individually and collectively. Be sure to stick with me after the conversation for a few closing thoughts and your call to action. Dr. Lori Helgo is a psychologist, educator, and author specializing in the relationship between personality and culture. She is an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Ross University School of Medicine, and author of several books, including *Introvert Power: Why Your Inner Life Is Your Hidden Strength*. Her latest book, *Fragile Bully: Understanding America's Destructive Affair with Narcissism*, was just released this week and is the focus of our conversation. Hi, Laurie. Welcome to "How Can I Say This" podcast. I am delighted to welcome you back and to dive even deeper into your book, *Fragile Bully*. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Beth. I enjoy talking with you. Well, congratulations on the launch. You and I are talking on launch day, which I. I feel very honored that you took out a few minutes of what I know is a very busy day to talk with us. So thank you in advance for that. Oh, so I have my copy of the book. I'm excited to dig into it. I'm curious to hear from you about、um, through the process of writing it and researching that book. What was the most surprising and/or useful thing that you learned about narcissism through the process? Right. So I think the most. Interesting part of the research for me, and and something that I didn't know as much about, is collective narcissism, and it interests me because I think it is such a player in today's political discourse,、mm-hmm. and it actually was found to be high levels of collective narcissism were found to be related to conspiracy thinking on both sides、um, during the presidential election. And what is really interesting about collective narcissism is that it seems to be fueled more from vulnerability、mm-hmm. than grandiosity,、yeah. and I can say more about that distinction because yeah, please, it's kind of a key one in my book. Please do. In the context of group narcissism, rather than thinking my group is great. The focus gets to be more on your group is hurting me,、mm-hmm. and that victimization almost becomes、uh, a weapon, and and we see that happening、uh, on both sides of the political discourse.、Mm-hmm. As far as narcissism in individuals, we think of usually the the grandiose, the braggart, the you know blowhard. We don't think so much about vulnerability and vulnerable narcissism. But I think it has a big hold on us, and so that to the extent that we really don't understand it,、mm-hmm. we may be reacting and kind of getting hooked by it. 
that's when the narcissist becomes fragile all of a sudden and keeps the focus on him or herself through that fragility. So anyway, when you asked what interests me and maybe surprised me a little bit, it it was learning more about that whole concept. Would you say that collective narcissism has become more prevalent? Or has it always been present and we're just more aware of it because we have more channels that broadcast it? Well, I think it's hard to know precisely if we measured people over time what we'd see. But what I can say about it is I think that it is something that gets fueled to the extent that, you know, if you think of the typical Facebook post you see with all cap letters, very provocative, and you immediately get angry. And let's talk, I mean, there's a specific one, the Covington Catholic, you know, example, where a whole narrative got developed, people react, people, you know, shared articles were written, commentary were written before anybody knew the facts. And so I think there is something contagious about collective narcissism. And we really have to be watchful. I I think we all have a potential to be affected by it. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can tell if you're part of a collective narcissistic group, collectively narcissistic <laughs> group. <laughs> um, let's see, a CNG. Um, <laughs> if you if you tend to have those sorts of, I almost think about it in, in relationship to tribalism. Yes. Yeah, I think of it as being associated with that. Would you say that that is a, a parallel that helps explain it? Yes. In fact, I talk uh, in my book about tribalism. And yes, it, it really has that character. And um, when you asked about, yeah, knowing where your group spends, mm-hmm. I, just observing myself and the pulls to polarize. You know, if I have somebody in my circle who posts something inflammatory, and I, I just kind of want to, you know, maybe challenge <laughs> <laughs> the extreme, you know, response, mm-hmm. I have an instant feeling that I might be disloyal. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a real problem we have right now, is that this idea that we really have to share this indignation, we have to share this defense of our victimhood in order to be a good group member. I think that's a problem. Gosh, you're making me think about... um... I enjoy in the mornings when I'm having my breakfast, just prepping up my phone and watching whatever late show routines were from the night before. And sometimes it's entertaining to read the comments, but I also am noticing just how much it seems like people fall into that tribal language that is so negative and charged. And I think it mm-hmm. serves to, I- I'm wondering, you know, it ser- if it serves to reinforce and affirm their identity in a particular group that is exhibiting these sorts of collective narcissistic behaviors by sort of throwing up a flag and saying, you know, well, I'm calling the other side stupid, so I'm one of you and I'm in your camp and we're all together and we're right. Exactly. And the, and the, the ironic thing about that is that what it actually does is undermine group identity mm-hmm. because you stop thinking about what you stand for and, and you're, you're only reacting to what you're against. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think... Yeah. Uh, you know, people have been aware of that. I think that was one thing in Hillary Clinton's campaign that was criticized is that she became so reactive mm-hmm. that we, we lost a sense of what she stood for. What's interesting about the research on collective narcissism is they did not find 
collective narcissism was less associated. Group pride was was not the issue. That was not the problem. Mm -hmm. So standing for what you believe in was not the problem. It was this need to react to the other group, to defend. Yeah, Yeah, I was just thinking that being on the defensive and putting others on the defensive Mm -hmm. as a tool to maintain your status. Right. Well, you know, this phrase narcissist, we we throw it around, <laughs> you know, they're a narcissist. It's a declaration that seems to be very casually thrown about, um, especially as we've been talking about, given the political personalities of today, and the dynamics of social media, you know, anybody who posts a lot of selfies will say they're a narcissist. Right. And I feel like we're in danger of diluting its true meaning by being so haphazard with that label. So let's maybe back up for a second and take a high level view and say, what is the clinical definition of a narcissist? Right. And I might even back up a little step before that is that, you know, what is narcissism? Mm -hmm. Because we have this misconception that narcissism is bad, it's unhealthy. When actually, narcissism is a human thing. It's, It's about having a sense of self. And if we don't have any narcissism, we really are not able to advocate for ourselves, uh, look out for our own interests. So it's better understood as a continuum, where both extremes are problematic. And then beyond that, yes, narcissist. Wow. (laughs) Probably the most overused term of the last decade, or or maybe just even we could look at the last year, it's probably spiked last two years. So narcissist, the problem with the term is, is it's often used as a weapon, people we are frustrated with, and who may very well have a lot of narcissistic characteristics. We use the term he or she's a narcissist. And even if that person is has a diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder, the problem with the term is that it's a dehumanizing term. Mm-hmm. It dehumanizes somebody who's already dehumanizing themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They become a caricature of themselves and we just buy in and we react to that caricature. So I think it's a dangerous term to throw around. On the other hand, it can provide some clarity for somebody who's struggling with somebody who's making them crazy. So I understand the use of it. So let me now finally get to your question, (laughs) which is what is the clinical definition? And when we use a clinical definition, we're talking about narcissistic personality disorder. (laughs) That is the diagnosis that we use for somebody who has a level of narcissistic impairment, that adversely affects their relationships, their work life, their functioning in some way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I look at the, you know, the diagnostic manual, it's a pervasive pattern, meaning it's consistent over time. It doesn't just happen because somebody got an acting job and they're full of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Pride <laughs> is not the same as narcissists. Right. Pervasive pattern of grandiosity need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. So when we see those characteristics, and then there are a number of criteria that come along with them that affect a number of domains of the person's life over time, we may diagnose. I can't do it to somebody I haven't evaluated who has given me permission to evaluate them. And so diagnosing is a whole other 
sticky wicket. Mm -hmm. But that's when we can say that there's a clinical issue. Yeah, I so appreciate this clarification that there's a spectrum. Um, You know, there's a continuum. Because what popped into my head as you were sharing that was about ego. Like we also say someone who is egotistical, or having an ego is a bad thing. And we can demonize that. But it seems like, well, we kind of need an ego in order to differentiate, to individuate, you know, to assert ourselves in the world and to put our stake in the ground. Yes. And so it seems like it's just like anything. There's there's a healthy side of it and there's an unhealthy side. Right. And knowing where you are on that particular spectrum is what's important. Yeah. I think this spectrum helps a lot in not only to understand ourselves, but also to recognize our shared humanity. Mm-hmm. One reason why people we call narcissists often get to us is because they tap into our own, you know, sensitivities and defenses. Exactly. Yeah. I had a coach who would say whatever, and and I think, you know, Carl Jung says this as well, you know, whatever is bothering you about someone else tells you something about yourself. And my coach would say, take whatever that is and see if there's a homeopathic dose of that that you need in order to be more whole or attain something that you are striving for. Ooh, I like um, that. Yeah. I like- yeah. She said that like 10 years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since as being very powerful. So even the narcissists that were like, oh, you know, let's just say, you know, that they are diagnosed, you know, depending on, you know, what the trigger is, there's something there to watch. Um, not saying we take on their characteristics by any stretch, but when we notice we get triggered, there's something to pay attention to. Yeah. And- in fact, you know, we have the Narcissus echo dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of the story of Narcissus, there was another character there. There was Echo, who could only echo Narcissus's words and followed him around and longed for him and then was spurned by him. And she just continued to echo and she kind of wasted away. She became hardened into stone. And that is one of the dynamics that can happen with a fragile bully is that the partner, the person attached to that person kind of gives up a sense of self. So in that sense, that homeopathic dose is very important, Mm -hmm. that sense of, you know, and it may be very adverse to the person. Oh, yeah, I don't want to boast. I don't want to, you know, draw attention to myself. So therefore, instead, I'm going to attach myself to somebody who does it for me. Mm-hmm. And so that can be one of a number of an vicious circles that keep us dancing the same steps over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've started to touch on this, and I, and I just want to um, circle back and ground it a bit. What's the difference between trying to be in a relationship with somebody who has that narcissistic personality disorder, who's on the unhealthy side, versus someone who consistently maybe has a few narcissistic traits or tendencies, but isn't technically a narcissist? Is there a difference? And what would we need to consider? Right. So I think, you know, somebody who's more moderate on the spectrum, you know, maybe likes to draw attention themselves, talks too much, doesn't listen <laughs> great, you know, <laughs> kind of things. But I think what it tips on is, is that person able to kind of be urged to see you and, and attend to what's going on with you? How good is that person at really turning things consistently around to be about mm-hmm. themselves and really unable to experience empathy? And I think I may have talked in our last conversation about this idea of empathy prompts that uh, Craig Malkin 
came up with. He has written about narcissism and works with narcissistic clients, narcissistically impaired clients, I should say. And this idea is not just being empathic to the person who's taking up all the space, but actually Mm -hmm. helping them to empathize with you, Mm -hmm. helping them to see you and not doing it in a way that's combative because that can trigger the victim dynamic or the bullying or whatever, but doing it in a way that's, that's connected mm-hmm. and, and acknowledges that your opinion is important to me. And I would really appreciate if you would take a moment to hear my perspective, mm-hmm. if you're wanting input from a boss or something, or, you know, you mean a lot to me. And, and right now I'm feeling like I'm not in the room, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing where you mm-hmm. are acknowledging the other person's humanity, you're acknowledging your own humanity, you're kind of finding a wedge between the fragile and the bully to the human that is there. Yeah. That's going to be easier to do with somebody with traits than, you know, somebody who has the full-fledged disorder. Because the, somebody with a full-fledged disorder, especially on the severe end, is really identified with this inflated sense of self and hungry all the time for that to be fed and has very little room to engage in a real way. And it's too threatening. Yeah, yeah. Is there hope for the true narcissist? I mean, that's probably not a fair question, but are they capable of change? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think that it really hinges on whether there is some incentive to change. Mm. Personality disorders in general and narcissistic maybe in particular even is something that's egocentric, meaning it's something that the person who has the disorder is actually pretty comfortable with, and they actually may get a lot of rewards Mm -hmm. from it. But, you know, if that person loses a relationship, that person loses, you know, a job, that person has some kind of crisis in their life where there is some need, and the disorder becomes egodystonic, it's not working so well, Mm That's when there's usually an opening for change. And in fact, depression may be a good sign in somebody who's narcissistically impaired Mm -hmm. because that creates some need and some desire for change. Sometimes there needs to be some kind of a chink in the armor Mm -hmm. where change can be wedged in. And that's often when therapists see somebody like that. And it may take the kind of therapy that I was trained in. We were trained to deal with the kinds of intense feelings that can be generated when you're dealing with somebody with a personality disorder and and how to work with that interpersonally so that you can help that person make that shift over time. In a way, it's like allowing them to look in the pool long enough so that they can start to internalize a stronger sense of self and carry it around with them rather than continually being stuck in the reflection. Yeah, it, it's ironic. And, to, and please correct me if I'm off base, but it, that someone who is um, se- centered on self can be completely lacking in self-awareness. Yeah, and I think Narcissus is a perfect example. He starved because he could not tear himself away from his reflection. I mean, that's one interpretation of the myth. He just wasted away. Mm-hmm. And you see that with narcissism is they're so fixated on their reflection that they're not getting whole 
wholesome relationships. They're not getting real connection. They're not getting the kind of nourishment they need. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they have a strong sense of self. It's the opposite. It's because they don't have that internalized sense of who they are that they can carry around and forget about for a while. Yeah, that's fascinating. (laughs) We could sit here and talk about this all day. Um, (laughs) I wonder, one of the the pieces that, that gets to this spectrum and the continuum is the different manifestations of narcissism that you have presented as a fragile bully matrix. Um, would you give us an overview of that continuum? And and a kind of a second question I'll throw in there real quick is, as you're talking about that, is there a representation of narcissism that's more common than others or a manifestation of it? Is there a spot on the spectrum that more people fall into? So when I, t- when I created the, the idea of the matrix, I'm taking two things and putting them together. And one is this continuum of narcissism from, you know, more garden variety, moderate narcissism to the more pathological extreme. Mm -hmm. And so that could be one axis. And the other axis is this fragile bully spectrum. So I mentioned, you know, the grandiose narcissist that, you know, is uh, kind of what we think of, the, the stereotype. And then on the other end of that axis is the vulnerable narcissist, where the self is so fragile that any hint of criticism, you know, threatens its destruction. Mm -hmm. That person actually might be more self-protective. You might see that person, you know, kind of vying for people's sympathy, not willing to be out there for fear of criticism. But in the middle is that fragile bully combination, which can be particularly maddening to deal with because Mm -hmm. you have somebody who's both bullying and helping and making you feel sorry for them at the same time. And you can feel very trapped in that kind of relationship. So on one axis, you know, the fragile to bully on the other, you know, the level, the extreme level, it would be hard for me to say where we place most of people, except that usually most people fall in the middle, right? <laughs> of, of most <laughs> yeah. Things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. You know. So I think to the some extent we can all relate to kind of maybe protecting ourselves from criticism. That's yes. You know, Right. And we can all probably relate to at times maybe being defensive and lashing out because uh, we have a certain idea about ourselves and don't want to hear anything different. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that messy middle is probably where most people lie. And and I like that because I think we've got to get away from this idea that narcissism or the narcissist is out there over there and not in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, having that awareness that we all fall in that messy middle can help us and assuming we are capable of the empathy and we are not on that extreme, of course, that it helps us to have empathy with somebody who's on the extreme end to maybe recognize a little bit of and, and use our own experience, our own motivations and whatnot as maybe a window into understanding a piece of what is going on for them even if that just helps us to not internalize, not personalize what's happening if we're in a relationship with somebody that's on that more extreme end of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's really true and also can help us to avoid the, some of the hooks. Yeah. If we're yeah. aware of where the hooks are inside of us, you know, it's like, okay, so why am I at war with this person? Why do I need to win so much? You know, mm-hmm. why is that so important to me? And why am I putting my energy into something that's so futile? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, just check yourself. Mm-hmm. Is that really worth it? And and that brings me to my last question, um, mm-hmm. which is if I live or work with someone that I suspect is that narcissistic personality disorder, what's the most important thing to remember when I'm communicating with them? Yeah, and working with somebody like that can be extremely challenging. Um, I think that watching the hooks when you're dealing with somebody with a full-fledged narcissistic personality disorder, watching the hooks, because what will end up is that you will get trapped. You will get in a situation Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're blind, angry, or something happens that they will turn back on you. Mm -hmm. I think documenting, you know, using sometimes communications that are more formal can be helpful. Setting appropriate boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is watching the bait. And not <laughs> and biting. Not bite. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Laurie, where can people learn more about you and get their copy of Fragile Bully? Because I know listening to this, they're going to be running to <laughs> to run and get their own copy. Well, I do hope so. And it is available everywhere books are sold, including Target and Walmart, I hear. Awesome. Also, they can engage my website, which has links to all the different sellers at FragileBully.com. Awesome. And also, I have a Fragile Bully page on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. And I have a Psychology Today blog, which just had uh, today came out with an excerpt from the book. So they might want to check that out. Terrific. Well, I'll include links to all of those things on the episode webpage to make it super easy for people to follow up and find you. And I have to ask before we say goodbye. So we're sitting here talking on March 12th. I'm looking out my window and I see snow and ice. (laughs) And I'm listening as we're talking and I hear the most delightful little birds chirping in the background. What's it like where you are? Where are you? (laughs) I am in Barbados. I say cautiously. I'm looking out at a plunge pool and beyond that, the ocean. Oh, lovely. Yes, this is a haven for birds and bougainvilleas. But I know that cold well uh, as my family (laughs) is... enduring the record snowfalls in Minnesota. The polar vortex and all of that. And you are fortunately in a very good place to avoid all of that. (laughs) I I am. I'm very grateful. Well, thanks. Thanks to the birds for sharing with us. And thanks to you uh, for your for your wisdom and insights. Um, And best wishes for every success with Fragile Bully. Well, thank you so much, Beth. It's been a pleasure. Before I offer some closing thoughts and your call to action, I invite you to visit the episode webpage at howcanisaythis.com. From there, you can find resources related to each episode, including this one, access past episodes, subscribe, or offer feedback. We also really appreciate your ratings and reviews. You'll find information about leaving a review for the show on the website. An occasional feature of this podcast is responding to listener questions about conflict, communication, connection, and relationship building. I welcome your questions for inclusion in a future episode. You'll find the online submission form and other instructions at HowCanIsayThis.com. In the next few episodes, we're going to be responding to a question about how to handle situations when your authority and expertise isn't being respected, among other topics. If it has to do with sticky communication situations, send your questions our way. I'm also pleased to be welcoming some amazing guests this month, including Matt Creven of Talk Shop and leadership coach Karen Lee. 
There were numerous points in this conversation that piqued my curiosity and made me connect a few dots in a way that I had never seen as related before. The idea I'm most intrigued to learn more about is collective narcissism. It's related to tribalism, which is another fascinating topic, and it's definitely at play in our culture these days. To put it simply, collective narcissism manifests when a group overestimates and overvalues its superiority while secretly fearing it's actually inferior. This causes that group to be extremely defensive and feel threatened by whatever group they're in opposition to. There's not a feel-good, positive energy to the group, but rather an energy that needs constant external validation and is defined and fueled by what it's against. I also think of the dynamic where the only way someone feels good is if they're putting someone else down. Even genuinely nice, compassionate people can get looped into these groups. I like to think of myself as a nice and compassionate person, but I know that whenever my husband and I are beating our tribal chests and venting about something that's outraged us, and he says, isn't righteous anger fun? That might be a hint that we've been hooked into collective narcissism. Here's your call to action. First, buy Laurie's book, Fragile Bully. Laurie's voice is accessible, engaging, and smart, and she brings an urgency and timeliness to this topic that makes for absorbing reading. Second, notice where you're engaging in collective narcissism, especially online, but also in real life. Consider times when you're confronted with a person or idea that provokes your tribal nature. Clues you're getting hooked in might include a lack of curiosity about the other person's perspective or experiences. That lack of curiosity might point to a lack of empathy for their position. You might feel defensive and a bit of that righteous anger I mentioned above. Your thoughts could be more focused on how wrong the other person is and tearing down their position, rather than feeling secure in the affirmative position that you hold. And when I say affirmative, I don't mean right, but simply that you are secure in your rationale for whatever it is that you believe, and you don't feel a need to trash another person's perspective in order to feel secure. Watch also for responses that resort to name-calling, cliches, or that dismiss the other person without any attempt to engage in dialogue. It's true that it's not always productive to try to converse about your differences, but notice if you're not choosing to engage because it would be unproductive or unwise, or because deep down, you're feeling threatened or insecure. If you find yourself joining the ranks of collective narcissism, take a break from whatever is hooking you in. And between you and I, I'm sure that it's probably your social media feeds. Before firing off a post, response, or a comment, take a few deep breaths and check in with your motivation. If you're only interested in putting the other person in their place, it might be best to choose the no comment route and move on to a puppy video. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously.